Well, hey, welcome to First Church Live. If you're new, my name's Chad, and we're so glad that you're worshiping with us today. We have our audience here in person, but also we have tons of family worshiping online throughout the 918 in other states and other countries. So if you guys here in person would, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online family? We are glad that you're with us, and I'm excited to jump into week two of our series, Reset, but before I do, there's a special acknowledgement I want to make. You guys have heard me say before how much I love our staff here at First Church. We have an incredible, awesome staff, and we have one staff member who this year is celebrating 30 years with us on staff, Miss Darla Clark. Darla is our financial director. And we want to appreciate her as a staff. We uh, acknowledged her anniversary this week. And normally we don't acknowledge anniversaries from the stage like this, but 30 years is kind of a big deal. By the way, I was five when you started working on staff for us. So, uh, yeah, and she was 12, she says. So uh, that's okay. But if you guys would, let's show Darla our appreciation. Darla loves this part. She, she loves being on stage. Uh, but no, we, uh, we do appreciate so much uh, all that you've done over the years. And, and, and I was trying to think in my mind just even how, I can't even think about how much, when it comes to our finances, just the numbers that have gone through that you have dealt with and helped us manage and budget. It's crazy. And the things that she's done. And, and we would let her talk, but she has so much dirt on us over 30 years, that ain't going to happen. But uh, anyway, but we do want to just show a little bit of appreciation, and you are very loved, as you just witnessed, and, and uh, we do greatly appreciate, because, you know, a lot of people think of somebody in her position as she's just crunching numbers, but Darla does so much more than that. She is a part of this ministry and uh, helps us keep the kingdom moving forward in so many ways, and she puts up with all of you all and your questions and everything. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot, plus our staff that she puts up with, so, uh, but we do greatly appreciate her. So what I want to do right now is I just want to pray uh, over her. Uh, prayer of thanksgiving and prayer of blessing uh, for her and her husband Chuck and family. All right, so let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do uh, just give you praise for allowing uh, Darla to be a part of our team for 30 years. You just don't hear that very much. And, and so, God, we're so thankful that uh, you have used her in so many different ways over the years, not just to crunch numbers and to pay bills, but, God, to minister to people in so many ways and to, to help people in so many ways. And so, God, I just thank you for her spirit of love and grace that she has uh, just shown so much over the years. And so, God, I just pray your blessing over her. I pray that uh, we'll have many more years with her on our team and that you'll continue to use her in great ways. And so we pray your blessing on her and on her husband, Chuck, and, and their whole family. God, we just pray that you continue to bless them and lead them. And, God, again, God, we give you all the praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Amen. All right, would you appreciate Darla one more time here? So, yay. I know we're supposed to social distance, but I had to hug her, okay? So we love her and we appreciate her, and she's great. Well, we are in week two of our series, Reset, and as we jump into this week's series, I also want to acknowledge it is, or this week's sermon, I also want to acknowledge it is the fourth weekend, right? Yesterday was the 4th of July. Hopefully you guys had a fun time celebrating. And the thing about the 4th is there's a lot of different things you can do. And so I want to see where our church is at right now. I want to put some choices up on the screen here of things that you could choose 
on the 4th of July, and I want to see what you guys would pick. So we're going to do some voting here real fast, and how we're going to vote is, as I put these two options up, you got to pick one. I want you to cheer, holler, whistle, scream, whatever you need to do, clap, so that the people watching online will know which side you're voting for. So let's see what you would choose if you were celebrating, you know, another 4th of July cookout this afternoon or something like that, okay? So the first option, the first couple options I'm going to put up has to do with food. So if you had to choose between a hamburger cooked on the grill or a hot dog, which one would you pick? So let me hear you. How many of you guys would pick a hamburger? Wow, that's incredible. I think we know our winner already. But how many of you guys would pick a hot dog off the grill? All right. Somebody booed down in the front row. What's up with that? Hey, my kids would pick a hot dog every time. If we had more kids in the room and not out at EC and up in our first kids ministry, they would be picking hot dogs. I guarantee it. Okay. This next one has to do with fireworks because fireworks is definitely that's something you do on the 4th of July. So if you had to choose between bottle rockets or sparklers, which one would you pick? And I know what the guys are going to pick already. It's not even, not even a secret. Okay. But here we go. How many guys would pick bottle rockets? All right. How many guys would, I don't know what you said, but I'm sure it was great. Okay, how many guys would pick sparklers? All right. There was more in this service than the previous service, so that's awesome. Yeah, now my kids, again, they would pick sparklers every time. That's their favorite, but I understand. I mean, if you get to blow something up, that's more cool. I get that. All right, this next one also has to do with food, but this is dessert. So on 4th of July weekend, would you pick... Ice cream or apple pie? So how many guys would vote for ice cream? Good number. Okay, how many would vote for apple pie? All right. Now, how many of you would put them together? That's where it is. That's where it is. Okay, one more. You also play games on 4th of July weekend. So if you had to choose between these two games, cornhole or horseshoes, which one would you pick? How many of you guys would pick to play cornhole? Okay. What about horseshoes? All right, all right, a little bit more cornhole players, I think. Yeah, I think I would pick uh, cornhole as well. But, you know, there's a lot of different games you can play for a cookout or when you grill out. And there are games you can buy, you can purchase. But there are also games you can just come up with on your own. And this week, as a staff, some of our staff members came up with a game that we could play that we kind of made up. You guys may not know this, or you might. If you put Mentos, the candy, in some Diet Coke, it will actually explode. It will foam out. It's pretty fun to watch, just to watch it by itself. But some of our staff came up with the idea, why don't we line up our staff in a row, put some Mentos in some bottles of Diet Coke, and see who can drink their Diet Coke the fastest. Take a look at what happened. I think that the ladies beat the men. I really do. I think they did a much better job. So that was a whole lot of fun. Matt and I didn't do it. We had a meeting. But they got to do it, and they had a blast. So anyway, the reason why I put some choices up here on the screen earlier is because it illustrates a key truth about life. Life, we all know this, life 
is full of choices. Every single day, we have to make decisions. We have to make choices. Now, some of the decisions we have to make, they're not life-changing. They're not life-altering decisions. Whether or not you pick cornhole or horseshoes, that's probably not going to change the course of your day. It's probably not going to change the course of your life. I get that. But there are some decisions in life that are life-changing. There's a famous quote by Andy Stanley in one of his books where Andy writes these words. He says, direction determines destination. I think that's true. What direction you're going in determines where you're going to end up. But I want to add something to Andy's quote, and it's this. Decisions determine direction, which then determines destination. Every single day we are faced with decisions that could possibly affect the direction of our lives and then will change the destination of our lives will change where we end up. And I think we all know that to be true. And here's the thing. There is one decision, probably the most important decision that you can make, that we have to make every single morning when we wake up. And that decision can be summed up in a question, and it's this. Will you follow Jesus? Every single morning when you wake up, you get to decide, will I follow Jesus or not? Will I follow Jesus, his plan for my life, what he wants for me, this life that he has laid out for me? Will I follow his purpose and live the life that he created for me to live and died for me to live? Or will I live for myself? Every single day, every single morning, we have to answer that question. And how we answer that question will determine the outcome of our day, but also may just determine the outcome of our lives. And it's interesting, when we think of that question, will you follow Jesus, normally we think that's a question that's asked like when somebody decides to get baptized or somebody decides to follow Jesus, you know, for the first time. But Jesus teaches us that this is a question that we need to ask every single day. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 9. Jesus says these words. He says, if anyone would come after me, meaning if anybody wants to be my disciple, if anybody wants to follow me, if anybody would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So what's Jesus saying here? If anybody wants to be my disciple, they have to choose either to follow themselves or follow me. And I'm asking them to deny themselves and follow me, follow my way of life. And look at what Jesus says. He says this is a what choice? A daily choice that we make. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is that our salvation is, our salvation is in jeopardy day by day. That's not what he's saying, that every single morning when we wake up, we get to choose whether or not we're saved. That's not what he's saying. Just because we make a bad choice or make a bad decision doesn't mean that our salvation is now in jeopardy. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is every single day we get to choose whether or not to live the life that he's calling us to live. Every single day we get to decide whether or not we want to live a life with His peace and His joy and His contentment, His happiness. We get to choose whether or not to live that life. And if we choose to live for ourselves, then we're going to go in the wrong direction. And we will eventually end up in a place where we never wanted to be. That's what Jesus here is saying. And so every single day when you wake up, do you decide to follow Jesus, because that decision will determine the course of your day, and it will determine the course of your life. And in this series we're in right now, we're looking at a church that existed some 2,000 years ago and was making a whole lot of bad decisions. 
That question was before them, will I follow Jesus? And they were choosing to follow selfish desires instead. And we see this played out as we read through Paul's two letters that we have that he wrote to them, First and Second Corinthians. But what you need to know about the church in Corinth is that it was located in a city called Corinth that existed some 2,000 years ago. And this city had a reputation. We talked about this last week. This city had a reputation for worshiping false gods, idols, but they didn't just worship statues. This city was also known for chasing after what I call functional gods. They were trying to find their identity in the things of this world. And so there were four key things that the city of Corinth was known for. Corinth was known for its sports. It was an athletic community. In fact, they hosted athletic events that people from all over the region would come and participate in. They were also known for the sex industry. I mean, this was a sexual, immoral town. And people chased after sex as a god. I know it's hard to imagine a culture like that, but that was the city of Corinth. It was a place where you could go and make a lot of money. It was the epicenter of trade in this region. You could go there and have a whole lot of business success, but also it was known for its academics. Because scholars and philosophers lived there. And so you could go and train under these great minds. And so a lot of people tried to find their identity in academics. And this is what people did. They chased after these functional gods thinking, if I can achieve, if I can gain a reputation in one of these areas, then I will have meaning to my life. I will have purpose and I can live a satisfied, content life. But the problem is, the more people chased after these functional gods, the more empty they felt. And that's why a church was planted in the city of Corinth. A church was planted there to show people a different way of life to show people what life was really all about, to show people that there is an eternal purpose that God has placed on their lives, that they don't have to chase after this stuff that everybody else is chasing after that leaves them feeling empty in the end, that they can live with eternal, everlasting peace and contentment and joy that this world doesn't even understand or can't comprehend. The church was there to show people Jesus' way of life, the only way to really live, but the problem is, over time, the church of Corinth started to blend in with the culture. And instead of the church influencing the culture, the culture was influencing the church. And pretty soon, you couldn't tell a difference between the church at Corinth and the culture in Corinth. And that's why Paul writes to them what he writes to them in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. In other words, I can't call you people who are led by God's Spirit. You're not people who are following God's lead in life. You're not people who are choosing to follow Jesus. You're people who are choosing to chase after what the world chases after. You're people who are following your selfish desires. And so basically Paul writes to this church to say, I can't tell a difference between between you and everyone else, and that's a problem. And when you look at what Paul writes to this church, you see what's going on. This was a church that was fighting and arguing among themselves all the time. This was a church that they were suing one another because money had become their God. This was a church where people were sleeping around with one another all the time because sex had become their God. This was a church that was excluding people because of their economic background or social or racial background. This was a church that was getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. This was a messed up church. And they were messed up because they were choosing to follow their selfish desires over following Jesus' path for their lives. And so Paul writes to this church to say, you guys need to hit reset. You guys need to start over because that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus gives us a chance at a fresh start. 
to start new again. You see, when we do life with Jesus, he'll show us how to reset our lives around what really matters. And so that's what Paul's going to do here is he's going to say, hey, you've lost sight of what really matters. You've lost sight of what life is all about. So let's hit reset and let's remember what life is really all about. Because right now, I can't tell the difference between you and everybody else who lives in your culture around you. In the 1950s, we entered as a country what was commonly referred to as the space race. The Soviets were the first people to put a man in orbit, and we were the first people to put a man on the moon. And one of the challenges that the NASA engineers faced was to find a wristwatch that could keep accurate time for the astronauts in space. As you can imagine, you face a lot of different pressure and temperatures and all that kind of stuff traveling to the moon, and so it was hard for them to find a wristwatch that could actually keep accurate time. And so all these Swiss watchmakers, famous watchmakers, sent their brands to NASA for them to run their test, and one watch won out. One watch was able to pass all the tests that the NASA engineers put it through, and it was the Omega Speedmaster, known as the Moon Watch, because it's the only watch to this day that has actually been worn by somebody on the moon. And you can buy your very own Omega Speedmaster today. It's still being made. For the low, low cost of $5,000, you can buy your very own Omega Speedmaster. Or if you don't have that kind of money, you can go to a vendor in New York City and buy one for 100 bucks. Now, it may not be the same quality, but hey, you can buy your very own Omega Speedmaster. And so I've got up here on the screen, I've actually got a real, authentic, legit Omega Speedmaster picture. But then I've got a cheap knockoff like you would buy in New York City on the streets. And so I want to see, we did some voting earlier, let's vote again. Except don't scream and holler this time, just raise your hands. I want to see if you can pick out which one is the real Omega Speedmaster. So let me just ask, raise your hands really high. How many of you guys think that the one on your right, the watch on your right, is the real Omega Speedmaster? Go and raise your hand if you think that's it. Okay. Put your hands down. Okay, good. How many of you guys think that the watch on your left is the real Omega Speedmaster? Okay, the only thing that I'm going to say about this is that those street vendors in New York would make a ton of money off you guys, okay? That's the only thing that I'm going to say. It's actually the one on the right, if you want to know for sure. So, yeah, so you guys won out. But if you voted for the one on the right. Now, counterfeit stuff is a big deal in our country. And the United States Secret Service, they have an entire task force that is trained to identify counterfeit currency, counterfeit bills. And so, for instance, if they're trained to identify a fake $100 bill, you know how they train their agents? They put them in a room to study a real $100 bill for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. Those agents who are supposed to spot counterfeit currency, they will look at all the details, all the minute details of a $100 bill, and they will know it backwards and forwards. They will know everything about it so that when they eventually come across a counterfeit $100 bill, they can spot what's missing right away. They can tell a fake immediately. And I bring all that up because we live in a society, a culture today, where 75% of Americans claim to follow Jesus. Actually, over 75% of Americans claim to follow Jesus. But let me ask, when you look at the cultural trends that we're experiencing right now, is that the case? Does it look like that over three-fourths of our country is following Jesus right now? And it's almost as if that Jesus knew that there would be different periods throughout history when 
people would struggle to tell the difference between those who, who are actually following him and those who are just claiming to do so. And so Jesus tells us this is the distinguishing factor. This is what is going to allow for his followers to stand apart from everyone else. This is the key difference between my followers and everyone else. He gives us what that is, that distinguishing factor in the book of John. Look at what he says in John 13. He says, love each other just as I have loved you. Now get that. What did Jesus do for us? He laid down his life for us. He sacrificed himself for us. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will do what? Prove to the world that you are my disciples. The quality and the quantity of our love will prove to the watching world that we are who we say we are, followers of Jesus. The quality and the quantity of our love, the love that we receive from God and that we share with others, will prove to the world that we are who we claim to be, followers of Jesus. And again, I just want to ask the question, I wonder if that's the case. Because the Bible says, Jesus says, we are to be a people marked by love. We're to be a people who are marked by God's love. And everybody should be able to tell that we're different because we are living in his love and his love is overflowing from us to others. That's why I love our mission statement here at First Church. We talked about it last week. Our mission statement is love Jesus, love like Jesus. And we get this from Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second greatest commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We base that off Jesus' words there because Jesus says all of God's law, all of the prophets hang on those two commands. In other words, it doesn't matter what else you do. If you're not loving Jesus with everything you have and loving like him, then nothing else you do matters. But there's a reason why we put it in this order. We do it because Jesus put it in this order, but also it's how it works. In order to love like Jesus, you got to first love him. You've got to first have a healthy relationship with him. You've got to be willing to live in his love daily. And here's the thing. The natural result of living in his love and experiencing his love on a daily basis is that you will love like him. The love that you receive from him will overflow to those around you because you will have his heart. That's why I love what John says in 1 John. 1 John 4 verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Now I have to admit, I grew up in church and I misunderstood this verse for many, many years. I used to take this verse to mean, well, we love because he first loved us means, well, because God loved us when he didn't have to and we didn't deserve it, now we're obligated to love others as well because people are hard to love. Have you seen some of the people out there in this world? People are hard to love, but we got to do it because God loves us. And so since God loves us and we don't deserve it, we got to go out there and we got to love people. It's hard, it's rough, but it's just part of it. We're obligated to do it because God has loved us when we don't deserve it. That's how I used to take that verse. I don't think that's what John's getting at at all here. When you look at the context of 1 John chapter 4, what John here is saying is, we didn't even know what love was until we met God. We didn't have a clue what love really looked like until we were restored to God. Until we lived in a relationship with Him, we couldn't define love. We didn't even know what it was. 
But once we got to know God, once we experienced his love, once we lived in relationship with him, we understood love in a way like we never had before. And now we are able to love people in a way like the world doesn't understand because God shows us what love really looks like. And if you want to know what love looks like, really looks like, look at the cross. Jesus laid down his life went to the cross in our place, sacrificed himself so that he could lift us up when we didn't deserve it. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to lay down our lives, put ourselves last in order to lift up other people so that other people can realize their God-given purpose, so that other people can experience the love that they were created to experience coming down from heaven so that other people can find meaning to their lives. And fullness in the midst of their emptiness. We're here to lay down our lives, to lift others up. That's why we're here. We look to the cross. That's why John also says in 1 John 3, 16, he says, this is what love is. That Jesus laid down his life for us. And then John goes on to say, and that's what we ought to do for our brothers and sisters. Now the church of Corinth, they had lost sight of all that. They were living for themselves. They were putting themselves first. And so Paul writes them to say, you guys need to hit reset. You guys need to remember what's most important, what's really important. And so he tells them what really matters in life. And look at what he says in 1 John chapter 12, starting at verse 31 and on into chapter 13. He says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. You want to know how to really live? Here's the best way to live right here. This is the most excellent way. If I speak in the languages of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. What Paul here is saying is it doesn't matter what you have in life. It doesn't matter what you've gained, what you possess. It doesn't matter what you've achieved. It doesn't matter how many talents or gifts you have. If your life is not driven by God's love, your life is headed nowhere. It doesn't matter how fast your life may be moving. If your life isn't driven by God's love, your life is headed nowhere. Because in order for your life to matter, in order for your life to make a difference in this world, It's got to be driven by God's love. So let's look at this in a a practical way. On a spiritual level, guys, it doesn't matter how many times you show up to church on Sunday or you worship online with us. It doesn't matter how much money you put in the offering plate. It doesn't matter if you sing the songs as loud as you can. If you're not driven by God's love, all that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you volunteer to be a chaperone or sponsor in our student ministry. It doesn't matter if you volunteer in the EC and you help check kids in. It doesn't matter if you volunteer at our cafe and serve people coffee. It doesn't matter if you're an usher or a greeter. It doesn't matter if you're not driven by God's love. And let's look at this on an even more practical level. It doesn't matter if you have all the money in, the bank, in your bank account that you want. It doesn't matter if you live in the biggest house or drive the nicest car. It doesn't matter if you've got more social media followers than anybody else. It doesn't matter if you've got influence and prestige and popularity. All that stuff doesn't matter. 
if your life is not driven by God's love. Because here's the thing, one day all that stuff is going to be gone. In fact, Paul even says later on in 1 Corinthians 13 that one day everything's going to be gone, but three things will remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Because in the end, what's going to last, what's going to remain forever is the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. And if you don't have that and the others around you don't have that, you have nothing. In fact, Paul refers to your life as just a resounding gong or a clinging symbol. If you live life and it's not driven by God's love, you're just a resounding gong or a clinging symbol. For my son Alex's first birthday, somebody gave him a drum set. Somebody who we used to love gave him a drum set. Because when you give a, I'm just kidding about that, but if when you give a one-year-old a drum set, you know what you hear constantly? You know what you hear all the time? This. Let me get closer so you can hear it. Over and 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 over again to the point you just want it to stop. And Paul here is saying, it doesn't matter if you preach the best sermon in the world. If you're not driven by love, it's just more noise in a world full of noise. It doesn't matter if you go on mission trips or you lead a small group. It's not, if your life isn't driven by love, it's just noise. It doesn't matter how much you give to the offering. It doesn't matter if you give to charitable groups. It doesn't matter if you help out those in need. If your life isn't driven by love, It's just noise in a very noisy world. It's just more noise that distracts people from what ultimately matters, and that is the love of God. And right now, as I bang on this, what do you guys want me to do more than anything else? Stop, right? Because it's annoying. And when the world looks at us, and we're not driven by love, they just want us to stop. Because there's already a lot of noise in this world. And they don't have time for us. See, when I talk to skeptics and people who question the church, a lot of times the reason why people don't come to church, I hear at least, is because of Christians, people who claim to follow Jesus. And I will hear one of two things. I will hear that Christians are either fake or they're judgmental. Meaning we're fake, we don't practice what we claim to believe, or we're judgmental and that we're always ready to point out everybody else's wrong, but we don't care about our own wrongdoing. Now we can argue whether or not that's true or if that's a fair assessment or not, but what if instead of being known by those things, what if we as the church, as the followers of Jesus, were known for being a people of love? What if people looked at us and said, hey, I don't agree with everything they teach. I don't agree with everything that they believe in but they're the most loving people out there. Hey, I don't agree with everything that they teach. I don't agree with everything they believe in, but you know what? My life matters to them. They love me. They'll do anything for me. They'll go the distance for me. What if we were known for being a people of love? Guys, we would change the world. And Paul here is saying, that's the way it's supposed to be. And somehow we've gotten off track. Somehow we've 
We've been going in the wrong direction. And we're headed for the wrong destination. And even today, when I talk about like our mission statement, love Jesus, love light Jesus, I will have people say to me, that's a great mission statement, sounds good, looks good on a t-shirt, but what does loving light Jesus really mean? Well, we don't have to guess. Paul tells us what loving light Jesus looks like. He gives us a definition of love, and here's the thing. When he does it, he does something completely countercultural. He doesn't define love as a feeling. That's how our world defines love, as a feeling, as an emotion. He defines love by what it does. And look at what he says here. You've probably heard these words before in a wedding, or maybe you've seen them on a Hallmark card or whatever, but these words are so much bigger than that. This is the definition of God's love for us and the way we're supposed to love one another, everyone. And look at what Paul says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And I love that love never fails because in Greek it means love doesn't give up. The word love here that Paul uses is the Greek word agape. And it's a word that is used over and over again to describe the love that God has for us. And it literally means sacrificing oneself for another. See, that's what we're called to do. God sacrificed himself for us and we're called to do the exact same. And so what we need to understand is our world defines love as a sentiment, but the Bible defines love as sacrifice. See, our culture defines love as a sentiment, as a feeling, as an emotion, as something you feel in your gut. It's butterflies and warm fuzzies and all that kind of stuff. Or maybe it's attraction, like sexual attraction or something like that. That's how the world defines love. But the Bible defines love as sacrifice. Because the, the Bible portrays love as a choice. It's a choice that we make, not a feeling that we fall into, a feeling that we can't control. It's a choice that we make. Love is a sacrifice. And when love becomes a sacrifice, love shows up in very real ways. And look at how Paul says that love shows up. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love is patient, love is kind. In other words, what Paul here is getting at is that love, God's love, it helps us see people differently. It leads us to see people differently than how we saw them before. So we see our families different, our spouses different, our children different. We see the people around us different, our friends different. We see everyone differently now because we are motivated, compelled by God's love. And so what it means is we set our schedules aside, our personal schedules and agendas aside in order to meet the needs of others. Parents, it means putting down your cell phone in order to spend time with your kids or spend time with your spouse. It means shutting your laptop in order to be present with your family or with your friends. It means going to your kids' t-ball games or soccer games. It means loving your spouse fiercely. It means going the distance for a friend or a co-worker even though they haven't asked you to. It means changing everything that you had planned in order to show God's love to somebody else. It means forgiving somebody even though they haven't asked you to forgive them. Because Paul does go on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, that doesn't mean that we just erase the past as if we don't ever learn from it, but what it means is we don't hold people's past against them anymore. We forgive them. But then Paul goes on to teach us something else. 
He also says that God's love helps us keep ourselves in check. If you want to go back to that other slide, God's love helps us keep ourselves in, in check because we need that. Remember what I said earlier? We have a choice to make every single day whether we're going to follow Jesus or follow our own selfish desires. We need to keep ourselves in check. And the way that we do that is by focusing on God's love. Look here at what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he goes on to say, Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. See, every time that I start to feel entitled or I start to demand something from someone else, it hits me in that moment that I've lost sight of God's love. Because here's the thing, you know what I deserve on my best day? What Chad deserves on his best day is death and hell. I don't deserve anything more than that because I've rebelled against God. And yet, Jesus sacrificed himself, gave himself up so that my destiny would not be that, so that my final destination would not be that. He died so that I could then live. And so that reminds me, I don't have the right to demand anything from anyone else. I don't have the right to feel entitled. Instead, what I need to do is just cherish and live in God's love and share that love with everyone else because everyone deserves the same punishment in the end, but God offers his love freely to everyone. So when you start to realize your place before God, it changes how you see yourself. Love when you live by God's love, you seek help when you need it. Love doesn't hide. Love doesn't pretend. Love doesn't act like a know-it-all or love doesn't think that it has life all figured out. Love doesn't tell lies. Love doesn't play games. Love doesn't scheme to get its way. Love listens to the wisdom, the godly wisdom that is around it. And love wants to make sure daily that it's not taking from others, but that it's giving to others. But then Paul goes on to say something else. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. See, what Paul ends here with is the idea that God's love gives us direction in life. Because we know we're living for a bigger purpose. We're living for a bigger purpose than sports or sex or academic success or business success or popularity or prestige or influence or power. We're living for something bigger than that because one day all that stuff is going to be gone. We're living for the eternal purpose that God has given us because we know that the greatest of everything that God, the greatest thing that God has ever given us is his love and it will last forever. So we live for a greater purpose, a bigger purpose than what everyone else lives for. Now all that other stuff, it's fine if it's practiced within the boundaries that God has set up, the parameters that God has set up, but the focus of our lives has to be His love. And when we focus on our relationship with Him, He will lead us, He will guide us, He will direct us. And our lives won't be just a bunch of noise. Because we're filling ourselves with His love and it's overflowing from us to others, the love that He's placed in us will change the world as it touches others. See, I just want to let you know what gets me up in the morning. You know what gets me up out of bed every single morning? It's seeing the love of God transform people. It's seeing people experience God's love for the very first time, and they come out of their spiritual concussion, and the cobwebs come down, and the light bulb comes up, and, the, and it comes on, and the fog lifts, 
And for the first time, people realized that they were created for more than reckless sin. They were created to be recklessly loved by their Heavenly Father. And when you see God's love transform and change someone like that, you want to keep telling people and keep telling people about His love and showing His love on a daily basis because that's what love does. Love shows up. It goes to where people are in the midst of their darkness in order to invade their lives with the joy of heaven. You guys know we haven't had rain for a while until yesterday. It rained yesterday, but we hadn't had rain, at least not a good rain for a while. And the last good rain we had prior to yesterday, Addie, my daughter, wanted to go out and play in it. So we put her rain boots on, rain jacket on, and she went out to play in the rain. And here's a clip of her. She's at the bottom of our driveway here, and she's just jumping in the puddle, having a good old time, loving it. But here's the thing, CJ, who's on staff with us, he was over at our house, and all of a sudden she stops because she wants CJ to come and play with him. She wants him to get into the puddle with her, with her and he didn't want to do it because, you know, he had good shoes on, didn't want to get dirty, all that kind of stuff, didn't want his feet wet, didn't have another pair of shoes with him. And so she continues to try to convince him, and eventually this is what happens. He gives in, and he goes down with her, grabs her hands, and they play in the puddle together. And I remember as I watched this play out, I thought, that's a picture of love. Love is getting in the puddle with someone. Love is getting in the dirt with them. Love is walking into the darkness where they are in order to show them light, in order to bring them joy, in order to fill up their emptiness, in order to show them what they were created for, to be recklessly loved by their heavenly Father. That's what love is. Love shows up. It shows up in the darkness. It shows up in the dirt. It shows up in the puddles of life. It shows up in the storms because that's where love is needed. So what I want you guys to do as we conclude here today, I want you to look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but I want you to read a little differently. As we put this scripture back up on the screen, instead of reading the word love, I want you to replace the word love with your name. Because what Paul here is saying is this is how we are to live. This is who we are to be. This is our identity. This is what it means to love like Jesus. So just substitute the word love with your name and see if this describes you. I'm going to substitute my name. Chad is patient. Chad is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Chad does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now let me ask, if you put your name in there and that doesn't describe you, it's time to hit reset. And Jesus gives us the chance to do that every single day. Because when we hit reset and we start loving people as God has loved us, not only will he change our lives, but he will use us to change the world. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this moment that we've had to open up your word and study it. Father, may we not be a people who just talk about love and sing about love, but may we be a people who actually are love, who go out and love like your son every single day. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.